In the book of Ecclesiastes, in your Bible, just about halfway through your scripture today, the book of Ecclesiastes and the third chapter, please. And I'm bringing a series of messages, and it's entitled The Christian After Death. I'm not so much focused on the state of the unsaved, but I'm trying to encourage and comfort and uh, instruct God's people in what happens on the other side for Christians. Now, I will talk about the unsaved a little bit today, even in this message, because those uh, truths overlap, of course. But in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the message today, the series is The Christian After Death. But today the subject is the state of the soul after death. The state of the soul after we die. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I'm only reading one verse. Verse 11, he hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he hath set the world in their heart, so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. Note the word world there. He hath set the world in their heart. If you have a marginal reference Bible or study Bible that has any additional helps in it, you probably have a little number by that or a little A or B or something. And you go over to the margin of your Bible. And what these are, the translators, when they translate the Bible, they try to give you the various shades of meaning of various words. So the word world there could have been translated just as accurately the word eternity. Now let's read it like that. He hath set eternity in their heart. He hath set eternity in people's hearts. Using the word eternity to mean all the ages of time, all the expanse, the existence of the worlds. And so he hath set eternity, remember that phrase, in people's hearts. Thank you, and you may be seated. So Ecclesiastes 3 and 11, he hath set eternity in the hearts of mankind. What does that mean? It means that God has put an innate awareness that he exists, that he made us, and that our souls are immortal. And he's put that thought within the hearts of every single person. You don't have to teach someone that there is life after death. People believe that intuitively. They believe that innately. If they ever cease to believe that, it's because somebody trained them out of that. They had to be educated away from that belief. Even little children have this innate idea that there is life following this life. Something tells every human being deep in their soul innately, it tells them that this life is not all that there is. If you go back in history, you think of the ancient Egyptians. And they built those pyramids that are still standing over there that tourists go through every day by the thousands. And those pyramids were built as 
graves, if you will, as monuments to their dead. They put their kings and their high officials in the pyramids. You know how they embalmed the bodies. Some of those bodies still exist today, unbelievably. And you know that in the rooms of the pyramids, after we've gone in there, the archaeologists have searched them out. They found virtually everything that you need to be able to live. They found all kinds of utensils to eat from, items of clothing. They even found canoes in, in the pyramids. And the idea was the Egyptians believed there was this mystical river that separated this world from the next. They call it the River Styx, S-T-Y-X. And they believed that the soul needed a canoe to cross that river. And so they buried their loved one with a, with a canoe. Some of the Plains Indians buried a pony with their chief so that he would have a good, reliable ride when he passed over into the next world. The Greeks, the ancient Greeks, put a gold coin in the mouth of the corpse so that the people would have some money to spend in the next world in case they needed it. There has always been this innate, intuitive idea that a person lives on even after they pass from this life. A little boy was flying his kite one day down to the beach, and the wind was just right. Boy, and he just took the kite of soaring. He kept letting the line out until there wasn't any more, and the kite was so far up in the air, you could barely see it. He didn't even know if it was still there. It was a little speck, and then that disappeared. And a fellow came by and tapped him on the shoulder, and he said, son, what are you doing? You're standing here holding a stick with a string on it. He said, oh, no, I'm flying a kite. And the man looked up and said, I don't see any kite. And the little boy said, oh, it's up there. I feel the tug on the string. And you know what? On the string of our heart, strings of our heart, I think there's a tug, a little tug. Every one of us intuitively, innately, instinctively understands there is a life after this one. The soul lives on. And particularly, we think about that when we stand with the casket of someone that we loved, a friend or a family member. And we look down in their cold face and we say, I wonder what it's like where they are. I wonder what they're doing. What, are, what do people do in the next world after they pass from this one? So today my subject is the state of the soul after death. The state of the soul after death. Where will you be and what will you be doing a hundred years from now? Well, I want you to turn with me first to the book of Revelation, chapter number 6. In Revelation 6, we have John's vision, John the revelator, John the apostle. We have his vision of souls in heaven. He describes them as being under the altar. I don't know exactly what that means. Maybe they're up against it and they're praying or whatever. But in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9, I want you to read with me from God's Word. Revelation 6, 9, and when he had opened the fifth seal, that's an angel who did that, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and the testimony which they held. 
And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Now, here we have a vision by John the Apostle. You remember he was on the Isle of Patmos, and the Lord Jesus himself came and gave him most of this. Most of this, if you, if you have a Bible with red letters, much of the book of Revelation is in red letters. Much of it was spoken by the Lord Jesus himself. The rest of it was spoken by the Lord's angels who came and inspired the book of Revelation. So this is the word of God. And if you will notice, this is John. He's describing a scene that is going to happen far in the future. In fact, what he saw here has not yet happened even today because he's looking to the time of the tribulation period. In the tribulation, we know that there's going to be people who come to Christ, who turn to him for salvation, and then they're going to be martyred. There's going to be probably as many people saved during the tribulation period as were saved through all of the church age. There's going to be millions and millions of people who come to Christ during the tribulation period. But we also know, and we're studying some of that in our reset series, we know that Satan hates these people. He does everything he can to destroy them and that there will be millions of people who will become martyrs because of their faith. They will die for their faith during the tribulation period. Now, John, way back there 2,000 years ago, is looking down through history he is looking to the tribulation period and he sees this scene here of these souls under the altars, he calls it. These are people who were martyred, not yet, but in the tribulation of the future. Their bodies lie in the earth, in the ground. Their bodies are going to return to the dust like any other deceased person's body. They're martyrs, which means they're believers, devout believers, willing to die for the faith. And we also know that their blood has been spilled upon the earth because of their faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. But we notice, though their bodies are dead, their souls are alive, that they have a conscious existence that they never went out of existence, a continuous existence, a continuity of existence that lasts clear in to eternity. Note with me, if you will, there in verse number nine, some things about these souls. I saw them under the altar, the souls of them that were slain. A soul can be seen. The eye can see the soul in, uh, when in the right circumstance here. And then if you will notice in verse 10, the souls cry out. Souls speak. 
these souls communicated with John, and he hears them crying out with a loud voice. And they're crying out, asking the Lord, come and avenge our, our deaths. When will we ever find justice, Lord? We have been murdered. Our blood has stained the earth. When are you going to come and avenge our death? Is their prayer. And then if you will look in the next verse, this is really interesting to me. White robes were given to, unto every one of them. A soul with a robe, not a spirit that has no essence, an ethereal thing that has no substance, but a soul that is capable of being dressed in a robe. Now, we know that Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there's a spiritual body and there's a physical body. There's a soulish body. And we don't understand that. Don't ask me too many questions about it afterward because I don't think I can answer them. I don't know what that soulish body is like, except I know that people were, are recognized after death, that they bear some resemblance to the person that they were upon the earth, to their physical uh, features. There's so much about this we don't understand, but there's also so much that we can understand. And so the soul can be seen. It can speak and cry out. It can be given a robe. There is a continuity of existence that once a person is born, that continuity is never broken. They live on. They live into eternity. W.A. Criswell is one of my four or five favorite theologians of all time. He was the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas for over 50 years, and it was a great, it, at that time, the largest Baptist church in the world. And Dr. Criswell, you don't, you know, his, his background was, grew up a poor boy in Oklahoma and went to Louisville Seminary, and there he became probably one of the greatest students of the Greek language of anybody who ever attended there. He was renowned for his knowledge of the languages and a wonderful theologian. And here's what he said, and I'm quoting him, because we get confused when we talk about the spirit and the soul, if we're not careful. And we tend to think of them as being the same thing, and they're not the same. Remember last week, I preached to you from 1 Thessalonians 5 and 23, and it said there are three parts to a man. I likened it to a house with three rooms. There's the body, the physical. There's the soul, which is the mind, the emotions, and the will the intellect, the feelings, and the ability to make choices. And then there is the mind, the emotion, and the will. And so we have three different parts to our being as Christians. Now listen to Criswell. I'm quoting Dr. Criswell. He said, pure spirit has no relationship to the body. God is a spirit. He has no body. Angels are spirits. They have no body. Satan is a spirit, but he has no body. And then Criswell goes on, quote, the soul, on the other hand, always has a body. It must have a body. There is no such thing as a soul 
that does not have a body somewhere. So a person dies. They're drowned in the ocean. They're, the fish eat their flesh. Their bones settle to the bottom and over time become dust and go back into the dust at the bottom of the sea. The soul, they, let's say they were Christians, the soul goes to heaven. But the soul always is aware of the body that was lost, from whom it was separated in death. In the Scripture, disembodied souls are referred to as spirits. Disembodied souls without a body. They're referred to as spirits, but while the soul may be separated from the body as the man who died in the ocean, the soul always has a body somewhere. And then Dr. Crystal said, so death is not the end. After physical death, whether a person was saved or unsaved, righteous or unrighteous, good or bad, wicked or holy, the soul lives on beyond death. The soul lives on beyond death. God hath set eternity in our hearts, an innate, intuitive, instinctive understanding that this life is not the end. Go with me to Luke chapter 16. I'm giving you two very classic passages that deal with the soul after death. First of all, John's vision of the souls under the altar in heaven, Revelation 6. And the second passage is Luke chapter 16, one with which you're very much more familiar. It's the two destinies of the soul. It's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It begins in the 19th verse of Luke's gospel, chapter 16. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. It came to pass that the beggar died and he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried in hell. He lifted up his eyes being in torments and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and so on. You know the story. Now this is the teaching of Jesus himself on the two destinies of the soul. It's very important that you get this, folks. You know, isn't it interesting? We put insurance on our lives. We put insurance on our health. We put insurance on our house. We put insurance on our car. We try to protect all of those things. And then we neglect our ever-living, never-dying, endless, dateless, timeless, eternal soul. We just put it off. The logic of a crazy man to not think about eternity. 
I don't want to go to that church and hear that preacher talk about death and dying. Well, then I'll tell you, make you a deal. I'll quit talking about it when you quit dying. Because if there's one thing certain, we know that it's death and we know you need to think about it and prepare for it. In this giddy, silly, frivolous world in which we live, we've got to come down to earth and think about that which matters for eternity. This is Jesus' teaching. By the way, it's not a parable. There's nothing, the word parable is not mentioned here. Now, one time mentioned this is the teaching of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, about the state of the soul after death. It's the story of two men. One of them is wealthy, verse 19. He lives a life of affluence. That's indicated by the fact that he dresses in purple, which was expensive clothing because the, the dye that made purple was rare. He, he dressed in fine linen. He fared sumptuously. He ate the best food, lived in the best house, had all the toys of life, whatever they were at that time when he lived. A life of luxury, a life of affluence, a life of privilege. He has the money. He can do what he wants to do, and he does it. The other man is a beggar, verse 20. We would call him homeless today. Every day he was carried there to the gate where this rich man lived in this big estate. And in those days, begging was very, very common. More, I mean, we can't imagine how many more poor people there were percentage than there is today. And he's laid at the gate full of sores and he eats the, he desires, he would even like to have the crumbs, the leftovers from the table of this very wealthy man. He would eat out of his wastebasket if he could. He is so poor. And they both died. And one of them goes to Abraham's bosom. And then the rich man died. And he just says he was buried. Now, keep in mind one thing. Their economic status, the fact that one is rich and one is poor, has nothing to do with their eternal destiny. Some people have mistakenly read into that, that if you're rich, you know, you have, you're less righteous. That's not true. Abraham... Job, lots of people throughout the Bible were very, very, I mean, greatly wealthy people. So we're not talking here about economic status. We're talking about what people do in relationship to God. Now, I need to teach something here that's hard to teach and keep a sermon moving and, and, and do it briefly enough. But it's a teaching. If you don't get this, you can't understand some important aspects of what I want to talk about today. In verse number 23, you will see, and in hell, he lifted up his eyes being in torments. But if you'll go over to the margin of your Bible, here's another one of those marginal references that give us insight. Hades does not mean what you mean when you say Hades. How many of you have ever said, or you sometimes refer, he went to Hades or, you know, use that term. Listen to me. Don't miss it. Hades is not just hell in the Bible. 
Hades in the Bible, before Christ came to the cross, I should say that, before the cross, Hades had two compartments in it, one for the righteous, one for the unrighteous. The word Hades does not even mean hell. The word Hades in, its, in the original language there means the unseen world. The unseen world includes both the saved and the righteous, the two compartments, if you will. Hades is not just hell, like Americans refer to it. It is the realm, the place of the dead, the place where the spirits and souls of dead, the dead go after this life. Now, listen to me real carefully. You with me? If you're with me, nod your head or say amen. Okay. I want to know I'm talking to live people here. Now, before the cross, righteous people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the Old Testament saints, they couldn't go to heaven. They could not go to heaven because their sins had not been completely paid for. Do you remember that in the Old Testament, they gave these offerings every week, and the offerings did what? They were a temporary payment for their sins, but they were not a permanent atonement for their sins. That's why every year they had to go back and do it again. They had to have Passover every year. Every time you send certain sins, you had to go and offer a sacrifice. And God couldn't let you into heaven in those days before the cross because your sins were not finally and totally redeemed. And so he created Hades, a compartment. The Jews referred to that compartment as Abraham's bosom. They also referred to it as paradise, two names specifically, paradise, Abraham's bosom. And then the other place was the place of torment for the unrighteous, the the God haters, the wicked of that time and period, at time and period. And Jesus Christ came to the cross and he died. And when he died, he paid for all the sin of the world. Amen. He paid for all sin. In fact, on the cross, he's dying. And what are some of his last words? He says, it is finished. Meaning, Sin is paid for. Tetelestai was the word he used. It was the word meaning it is paid. Every sin for every human being has now been paid. And after, as he died that day on the cross, Jesus looked over to that believing thief who was beside him. And what did he say to him? Today, right now, you will be with me in paradise. You're hanging on that cross physically, but in a few moments, you're going to die. And when you do, I'll meet you in Abraham's bosom. I'll meet you in that compartment of Hades where the righteous dead go before the cross. And if you read the whole Bible, and I don't have time to turn you to all the scriptures, but you know what Jesus did after he went to the cross during the time of the cross between the cross and between his resurrection? He cleaned paradise out. He took all those souls with him to heaven, and there they are today. 
Hades, one compartment now is empty, the other one still exists and will until the final judgment when it will be turned into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20 is the proof text. Now, we see these two men. And Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham. Verse 22. His soul was carried there by angels, which is a hint. Do angels come and carry our souls into the next world? I would lean toward the opinion they do based upon that text right there. And the Jews then referred to this, as I said, as Abraham's bosom, and that's where Lazarus is. Note the rich man. In verse number 23, he is in torments. Circle the word torments. And he talks about at the end of the verse of 24, I'm tormented in this flame. And so it's a place of flames. Do we believe that hell literally has flames in it? Well, you'll have to argue with Jesus about that. Now, here's what I think people do, though. Let me make a statement without going soft at all on hell because I believe in hell. Here's what I don't think people think accurately about. The Bible doesn't say that his body is in the flames. You see, I don't think God intends to torture people. There's a difference between punishment and torture. I can't find in the Bible that the flames are necessarily licking on the body of everybody there. It could be that the flames are the whole atmosphere of the place, that there is fire in hell. But I don't know the extent of the fire is the only thing I doubt. I don't doubt that. I mean, I believe in the flames in hell. I just don't know exactly all these details of what it means. I know it does have flames. And I know that people are tormented. And I know that if I had an unsaved loved one that wasn't saved, I'd be doing everything I could to get them in to the kingdom of God. And I know that when a church ceases to evangelize, it's playing wordsmith with this because this man had five brothers and he, you know, he was not as foc- any more focused on his own suffering than he was on somebody going and telling them and keeping them from coming. Pretty powerful stuff, huh? So the two destinies, the beggar, a righteous man in paradise because he's righteous, because he has a right standing with God. The rich man in torments, in a place with flames. Asking even that they would send somebody to put a drop of water on his tongue. Now, both of them are alive is what I want you to see today. Both the rich man and the Lazarus are alive. Neither of them has ceased existence. There is a continuity, a continuation of their conscious existence. I want you to notice one other thing. I don't want to deal with the passage in great detail, but in verse 26, it says there's a great gulf fixed between the two compartments and the real world. And you can't go back and forth between them. 
the rich man is making a request and they say, no, we can't do that because we can't travel back and forth between these two places. There's a great gulf fix there. Now, we've looked at two really classic passages that deal with the state of the soul after death. Revelation 6, Luke 16. And there are more, but I don't have time for that today because I want to make some application. Now I want to talk about a lot of views that are false views that people have about the state of the soul after death. In our culture today, first of all, many people believe in our culture that once you die, you cease to exist. They believe that death is annihilation. Annihilation means that's just it. It's over. You're dead. You're unconscious. You don't know anything. This is the argument of the atheist. Oh, there's no life after death. There's no God. Live on the, uh, on the earth. Live an animal life, a physical life. There's no soul. There's no spirit. You die. You pass into eternity. But there's no eternity. You're just, it's just all black. It's just the end of everything. Well, go to your Bible with me again. Back to the same chapter, Ecclesiastes 3. And would you note with me there, I'm going to read from verse 19. Ecclesiastes 3 and 19, the question is, is death the end? Do we believe in annihilation of the soul, the spirit, after life? And in Ecclesiastes 3 and 19, for that which befalleth the sons of men also befalleth beasts. Men and animals are the same. Even one thing befalleth them, as the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they all have one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. And all go into one place, and all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. This is the belief of the annihilationist, that man dies and he dies like an animal. The animal has no spirit. The animal doesn't have any eternal existence. Neither does a man. He dies, he goes in a black hole in the ground, he turns to dust, and that's it. No future existence at all. Now, first of all, to understand that the whole book of Ecclesiastes is, you, you need to understand it's the, it's the perspective of a man under the sun. The theme of the book is under the sun. It is the way of thinking, the mindset of a man without God, without Christ, without a Bible. It's human reasoning, it's humanism, if you will, to a high degree. And so this is Solomon reasoning without God like a human being would reason. And he looks at the man, he looks at the animal, and he says there's no difference. They both die, and that's the end of them. There is no eternal existence. If you reason without God, you could come to that kind of conclusion, of course. But if you'll go to the end of the book, to chapter 12, and verse number 7, now he makes some conclusions, and these conclusions take God into perspective. They take, they take into consideration God. And what does he say in 12 and 7? Then shall the dust return unto the, unto the earth as it was in the beginning. And the spirit shall return unto God. 
And so at the end, he's changed his, he's, he's, he's given us the whole picture now, the conclusions. Yes, the body is going to die and go on the ground, but the spirit is not going to be annihilated. We're not annihilationists. The spirit will return to God, the one who gave it. So the people that believe there is no existence after life, they believe in the annihilation of the soul, they're wrong. That's, a, that's an error. Second group of people. People today, many people in our culture believe that there's an intermediate step between death and heaven. And particularly these are our Roman Catholic friends. They believe in a place called purgatory where for certain sins you go and your soul goes to that place and it is in fire and it is purified by its suffering it doesn't stay there for eternity. It's a temporary thing. But the soul, the, the sins of the soul are paid for by punishment in purgatory. You stay there depending upon the severity of your sins, how much you've sinned. My answer to the person who believes there is some kind of intermediate step, and, and there are other people, they, do, they may not believe in purgatory, but they believe you know, well, after you die, it's going to be a while before you get to heaven for various beliefs. It may take you six months or a year to get there or whatever. Luke chapter 23 and verse 43. I've already quoted the verse, but I return to it because it's so, so much a truth. It is the thief dying beside the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ looks at him, forgives him of his sins, and he says What? Today, the emphasis is on today. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today. No intermediate state where you go for a year or a hundred years or whatever it may be. You're immediately in the presence of God. There's no room in the Bible for purgatory or an intermediate state after death. Monday, I conducted a funeral, as I do so often. And I looked down at that box in which my dear sister's body lay. We take it to the graveyard. I still like that term. It's old-fashioned. It's what it is. See, we use all these terms trying to cover them up. It's a graveyard, no matter how you cut it. We take him to the graveyard. We place the body in, a, in the grave. And the body returns to the soul, to the du dust to dust. But I'm so glad I didn't believe my sister was in that box. Because there's one verse that I quote in every funeral of a believer. Absent from the body present with the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? Moved out of the body. Just moved out. But I'm with the Lord. With the Lord in glory. So the people who believe that uh, there's an intermediate state have to deal with that one word. Today thou will be with me in paradise. 
And then there are other people who believe that the soul sleeps in the, in the grave with the body. That when the body ceases to function, the soul stays with the body in an unconscious state, sleeping, and then it goes to heaven at the resurrection of the body. Go with me to the book of Psalms, number 30. And much of the teaching uh, involves verses like this. I only have time to read the one. There's probably five or six verses like this sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. We read there in verse 3 of the 30th Psalm, O Lord, thou hast brought up my soul from the grave. Now, just a superficial reading of that sounds like that the soul was in the grave, doesn't it? But again, you have to study the, you really have to study the Word of God. And we just, most Christians don't spend time studying it. They at best just read a little bit of it devotionally. You see the word grave there? Circle it in your Bible. Thou hast brought up my soul from the grave. The word grave actually is sheol. That's another one of those Old Testament terms. It actually means the place of departed spirits, the place of the departed spirits of men, souls of men. In other words, sheol is that place of two compartments, if you will. And so the psalmist is writing, Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol, the place of the departed spirit that I've already talked about. And then there's this big category today that I don't have a lot of time to deal with, but you're very familiar with this one. Well, what about these near-death experiences where people, quote, die, and then they come back and they tell us things about this experience that they had. And we now have this new term for the last 20 years or so. We call them near-death experiences. I want you to remember that it's called, even by the scientists who investigate it and talk about it, they call it near-death. They don't call it death. And if my wife came to me and was sick and she said, Bill, I died and I saw these things, and, uh, but I've come back. You know what I would say to Norma? I'd say, honey, sit down and relax. We need to have a little talk. Because you don't come back. There is a great gulf fixed, and you can't go back and forth. 90 minutes in heaven, the story of a Southern Baptist preacher, brother, Don Piper, in a car wreck on a bridge on a freeway down in South Texas. The EMTs loaded him up, no vital signs, zipped him up in the bag, took him to the hospital. 90 minutes later, he resuscitated. He wrote about it. I've got the book in my library. Heaven is for real, the story of Colton Burpo, a little boy who was four years old. The surgeon was do, uh, doing an appendectomy on him, and he claimed to have these experiences. And four or five days after this, and he flatlined while he was in surgery, I should say that. 
And then they resuscitated Colton and they brought him back. A few days later, he began to tell his mother and daddy about his experiences. His dad is a part-time preacher. And so his dad wrote these things down in the book, Heaven is for Real. I think they made a movie of that one. He said that when he was there in heaven, he claims that he sat on Jesus' lap. He claims that he saw his dad praying in the in the waiting room, which his dad was praying in the waiting room. He claims that he met his sister who he had not known about. His parents had never told him about it. She was a miscarried child who died before her birth. And he, that parents had never told this little four-year-old boy about it yet. And he claims that Jesus came riding on a rainbow-colored horse. And they put this in a book, made a movie, and there are people who really get fascinated by these things. Now, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I'm a pastor. But I put the Word of God, listen to me carefully, because I've talked to church members who had gone pretty much hook, line, and sinker along this line. I put the Word of God as higher testimony than anything anybody tells me. And that's why I said if my wife told me she had come back from the dead, I would say, but Norma, it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 9, you might want to mark this in your Bible, when you talk to these people, verse number 27 it is appointed unto a man once to die. Once to die. Is God's word accurate or are these people's accounts accurate? I think these people are sincere. I don't think all of them make it up, although one of them did. His name is Alex Malarkey. He wrote a book called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven and then couple of years later admitted he had made the whole thing up. The whole thing was malarkey. <laughs> Alex had lied about it. The whole thing was a fraud. But I think the little Burpo boy or Don Piper are probably very sincere individuals. I don't know. I can't explain this and nobody else can. Doctors can't explain it. Is it the chemical changes in the brain as we near death? Is it the lack of blood flow? One doctor, I've done a lot of research this week on this. One doctor says that one out of ever so many thousand people that we anesthetize and put them under for surgery, that there is this unreal and uncanny thing happens that they can tell you about a piece of equipment or the color of something in the operating room while they were under that they could not even see that it was behind them or it was in a, over sitting on a cabinet or something. How all that happens, we don't have an explanation, but I know one thing. I'm anchored to the Word of God. Keep in mind, near-death experiences are near death, not death. And there is a wide difference. I choose to believe the Word of God. It is appointed once to die. Luke 16, 26, there's a great gulf fixed. You can't come back over. I choose to believe God's Word.
But this answers another question that people have today. Do you believe in ghosts? Well, isn't it crazy? They got whole programs on TV about these people out searching for the ghost, you know. There is a great gulf fixed. That takes care of the ghost too. And then there's one more. I had a woman in the church very sincerely ask me about this some time back. She said, I've been watching that TV program, Touched by an Angel. Do people come back as angels? Turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 18. You'll find your answer there in the words of our Lord, Matthew 18 and 10. Jesus is talking about children. He says, take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven there are angels, their angels, not them, their angels do behold the face of the Lord. Psalm 34 teaches us that God does have his guardian angels that protect his people. These are not speaking about people coming back as angels. It's speaking about the guardian angels that God gives for the protection of his people. So let me conclude. Look up here and listen to me now. Our bodies die, but our souls live on. Righteous or unrighteous, the soul lives on. Our souls are immortal. John Quincy Adams, the fourth president of the United States, was 80 years old. He was turning 80 right away, and he was hobbling down the street in Boston. He was leaning on his cane. One of his friends came up and put his hand on his shoulder and said, John Quincy, how are you doing, my friend? How's John Quincy today? And the old man turned, and he said these words, and I quote, Fine, sir, fine. But this tenement that John Quincy is in is not so good. The underpinning is about to fall away. The thatch is all going off the roof. The windows are so dim that John Quincy can hardly see out of it anymore. As a matter of fact, it wouldn't surprise me if before winter was over, John Quincy had to move out. But as for John Quincy, he never was better. He never was better. He understood the difference in the body dying and the soul living immortally. Stand to your feet with me if you will, please, and bow your head.